Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I continue chatting with Aron, Harry Layla and Vodine England about the life of Cindy businessman and philanthropist Harry, Harry Layla. Born in 1922, he came to Hong Kong from Guangzhou at the age of seven, which is also when his education stopped. He started out in Hong Kong, living with his parents and siblings in one room in Sham Po. With the lifelong support of his wife Padma, he would go into tailoring and then on to property and the hotel business. He believed in lifelong education. Businessman Aron Harilela is Harry's sixth child and he recently opened the hotel The Harry in Wan Chai. Journalist and historian Vodin England has written a biography of Harry Harilela, also using Harry's own memoirs. I asked Aron Harilela how his father had the expertise to move from tailoring to property. Well, I think coming from nothing, owning absolutely nothing, his dream was always to own something. And to own property was uh, always something that was grounded. So he always aspired to, to own property. When he was in tailoring, we had 900 tailors housed in a property that he owned, and we were churning out 600 suits a day. But during that time, he always kept on buying, as small buildings, he kept on buying small flats uh, here in Hong Kong, and he was trading them as much as he could. If he could make a profit out of them, he would sell. His ultimate dream was to own something that was landed, but something larger. And I think his vision into the importance of real estate and he, what he saw as a burgeoning industry, the, the travel and tourism industry, in those days it was less traveling for business, it was more traveling for leisure. And he saw that burgeoning. I mean, he had a lot of friends in America and the Americans had, had seen that happen and he learned from them. And he saw that coming into Hong Kong, Kowloon was a bustling port. Kowloon was the place where all the goods were coming through, all the trade was happening, and it was a li little bit more leisure there. So he saw that trade and tourism and leisure travel would happen on the Kowloon side. And obviously looking across the road to the peninsula, he thought that was the place he could do it. But it all emanated from a desire to own grounded property because he started with nothing. Tell me about the Holiday Inn. That's a very interesting story, actually. So he bought the land in the late 60s during the, the very difficult time in Hong Kong. And he wanted to build a five-star hotel in, in Hong Kong. 19 stories high, three basements, uh, full pillarless ballrooms, which is very difficult to do. It's difficult to do today. I've just built a hotel myself. I know how difficult it is to do today. So I know the State Theatre in North Point, which avoided having pillars in the theatre by having a a very iconic structure on the roof. So how do you do a pillarless ballroom? Uh, so basically you need a uh, mezzanine floor with a lot of concrete. So therefore you essentially lose three quarters of a floor through concrete, which can then transfer the weight of the building onto the peripheral sides of the building. The periphery, uh, the, the sides of the building then have to be slightly thicker as well to be able to, to have a pillarless ballroom of that size. I contemplated it here and I said, you know what, it's, it, it's maybe too difficult. It's too costly and it's too difficult. And so therefore I'd rather just build a hotel without a pillarless ballroom. He, in the 1960s, said, no, I must have something like that. And what's interesting is that he flew to the States to talk to management companies, and he nearly signed on the dotted line with another management company, but arrived in Memphis, Tennessee, having said to my mother, my mother traveled with him on every single trip, every single business trip, every single holiday they, they went together. There was not one business trip that he did not go without my mother, except for one when, when her father was ill in Los Angeles. But 
that he said to my mother on this trip to America, he said, you know, I don't really need to go to Memphis, Tennessee to see the founder of Holiday Inns, Kemmons Wilson. But, you know, we made a commitment, so, so let's go there. They flew there. Kemmons and him got on like a house on fire, and he said, all right, I'm going to build you a five-star Holiday Inn in Hong Kong with pillarless ballrooms, a 24-hour room service, a signature restaurant. And Kemmons Wilson said, well, you know we're three-star hotels in, in, in America. He says, we will make Holiday Inns a five-star hotel in Asia. And when it started, it, it really was a five-star hotel. But the construction was mired with difficulty. There was Typhoon Rose, which is one of the biggest typhoons in Hong Kong. They were digging by hand because they couldn't use dynamite to go to, because of the, the surrounding buildings, they couldn't use dynamite. So they were digging by hand to go three stories down to make this pillarless ballroom. That was entirely flooded. The price of steel had gone up tremendously during that time because supply was short. Ships were not bringing steel into Hong Kong. The, the budget escalated threefold. My father had to go to find a loan from HSBC, Michael Sandberg, who said to my father, if you give me your word, that you'll give me this uh, loan back, I will give it to you. Five million Hong Kong dollars in, in those days, which was the line between failure and success. But I'm also reading about how, you know, he has a good friend and he actually goes off and <laughs> mortgages his house for him. Oh, I mean, th that friend is, is extraordinary, Billy Viprin, yeah. right? And it's just one of these marvellous connections that Harry made throughout his life. And as Aaron said, Harry was also made by the fact that he f went far beyond his own community. So Billy was a tough little Jewish guy from the streets of the west coast of America who had sort of grown up fighting off, I mean, literally, his schoolmates and had done things like go out one night to get some milk from the delicatessen and came back having actually bought the delicatessen. Um, so, uh, and this was very early on in his married life to the marvellous Tootsie Viprin, who I was delighted to have a great conversation with when she was at least 100, wasn't she? Or she I was think she was 99. She was 99. She's astounding too. Anyway, Billy and Tootsie were basically Harry and Padma Harry Leila's best friends. And for, they knew them here in Hong for Kong. For decades. They met in Guam. I mean, they met because of Guam. So, I mean, without going into the whole sort of life story of Billy and Tootsie, they had come from nothing and been amazingly enterprising and had gone to Guam when the U.S. troops were setting up huge bases there and had pioneered their own enterprises there, starting out with laundry and going far beyond. And so they had therefore met Harry's brothers who were doing the tailoring business from the Guam side as they then came to Hong Kong and met Harry and for some reason or other the bonding worked with Harry well I think because they had the same thing in common where they just you know had brilliant ideas and acted on them and they worked and so over the decades they were just incredibly close and yeah Harry always called Billy his Corsican brother which you know for a, for a Cindy guy and a Jewish American they were Corsican brothers which I thought was a great combination and so, yeah, Billy would do anything for Harry and vice versa. And I think the families are like that to this day. They're just virtually sort of combined. And Billy indeed mortgaged everything that was needed to help Harry get over the line when there were troubles with the Holiday Inn. Another example of how Harry's ability to connect across sort of boundaries and what a success this made for him, when he was first learning property, there was one guy who was incredibly useful to him, who was Chapman Ho. And Chapman and his brother, they were just the guys who owned the building next door on Nathan Road. And they wanted to, to buy the building that 
that Harry had an interest in because they wanted to do something with it. And Harry said, no, 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 you join me and we'll combine this whole thing and we'll do property deals together, which they did. And so, I mean, people say different things about Chapman Ho, but he knew property market in Hong Kong and he had all sorts of connections. And he basically, I think, was in a way a sort of unofficial tutor for Harry early on in the property market. He would buy things with Harry's money and Harry would see the profit before he'd even seen the property. So a few things happened like that early on, which I think was part of Harry's early education in the property market. I'm talking with Aaron, Harry Layla and Vodine England about their book, Harry, Harry Layla Made in Hong Kong by Vodine and uh, using lots of stories of Harry, Harry Layla's life, including his own memoir and plenty of photographs. We've been talking about Harry, Harry Layla's uh, business acumen, the complete stalwart support and loyalty of, of wife Padma, as is mentioned in the book, just how integral she was uh, to his success. I've been reading how they regularly did four trips a year around Southeast Asia and, and for their businesses and also a world tour where they would also go to the West Coast uh, where they also had friends. But also tell me about not only his business side but also as uh, a family man and as a philanthropist. So if we can go first of all, I was interested, I'm an ex-guide and also venture scout so I was very interested to see how involved he was with scouts and guides here. If somebody reads the book what becomes very clear is that he was a family man through and through. His business was incredibly important to him, but his family was the strength that, that he had to go forward on uh, to do that business. But he also believed in Hong Kong because he came through Hong Kong and he saw a lot of boys and girls like him who didn't have very many opportunities in their life. Education was one major part of his philanthropy. He has been donating to universities, to schools, to scholarships, to girl guides and, and to boy scouts, actually, because he also saw that as an opportunity to bring a lot of children to gain experiences, to bring them out of poverty, to meet other people, to meet a wide range of communities. So he was always very supportive of the Scout and uh, Girl Guides. At his funeral, three people came up to me and said, you don't know me, but uh, we've had the Harry Harry Leela Scholarship, and now we're doing... Uh, one person was in the government, one person was, was an aspiring lawyer, one person was an accountant. And they said, Look, we've never met him, we've never met you, but we've come to the funeral just to say thank you f uh, for giving us this opportunity. And that was one of the most touching things to, to see, that he had reached out and actually touched a lot of people who we probably still don't even know. Yeah, he was, uh, with his philanthropy, was an interesting one because, of course, yes, he was hugely successful and, yes, he was rich, but it seemed to be very much part of his ethos and also a, a source of contentment for him that he would give that away, but in a structured way. So it, it went to various institutions, but as you say, and probably furthering young people for their education. So essentially, it, it really dealt with education and, and bringing people to gain further experiences in whichever way that he could do that. I mean, he had donated to universities in, in Hong Kong, uh, secondary schools in Hong Kong, given individual scholarships, donated to universities for, for classrooms and lecture halls. And it was all about that, actually. Less so about giving money back to India. A lot of Cindy's in Hong Kong say our base is India, we're Indian, so therefore let's give all the money back to that, that we make back to India. My father's perspective was very, very different. He said, we're Hong Kongers, this is the place that's given us our life, and so therefore it's time for us to give back to, to Hong Kong. So what, was, what sort of connection did he have to India, if any? Not a huge amount, I must say. Uh, he was very proud of being an Indian, and after independence uh, in 1947, he asked Nehru, 
when my father was head of the Hong Kong Indian Association, to come to Hong Kong. And people just could not believe that Nehru would come to a colony, you know, having just uh, been granted independence in India. Uh, so he was very proud of being an Indian. When Nehru did come, one of the things that my father said to him is, I'm very proud of being an Indian. Here's my Indian passport. And I'm so proud to have that. Nehru said, why are you proud to have that? Being Indian is actually internal and uh, a passport's only a travel document. At which point my father realized, he said, you know what? This is the place. Hong Kong is the place that's given us our life. And this is where we have to give back to. And it is not India. So he he was very structured and very committed to the place that he grew up in. And he wanted to give back all the things that he had experienced as a child with the inability to actually transgress communities, with the inability to uh, stay at school or have enough money to talk to people of all ranks and files and, and communities. He was determined that as much as he could help the youth of Hong Kong transgress communities, transgress their stages in life, he would try to help them do that. And whether that meant education in terms of academic education or education in terms of tertiary education or girl guides, boy scouts, anything like that, he was very determined to help. I think uh, you, you mentioned 1957 for Nehru coming across. I mean, it's interesting, around that time also, he's talking in the book about being great friends with Alexander Grantham, the governor, which I think is very indicative of, of all the circles that he's moving in. Yes, I mean, part of this is simply a man trying to make it to get ahead and therefore very keen to be in touch with the circles of power. And that is, of course, as a cynical old journalist, where I started on some of this. And then gradually, the more I read and the more I sort of read from the reactions of the people he was meeting, I warmed up a bit and realized, no, he actually likes being with a whole range of different people. And he actually wants to deal with people who might get things done, who might make a difference to something in the local community. If he saw something going on in Chimsa Choi, which was where he really was most active, that he thought needed to be fixed or improved upon or whatever, he wanted to be able to go to the people in power who could make a difference, who could change a rule, who could institute a new way of doing things that would make something better in the neighborhood. So his civic engagement started, first of all, very close to home and close to the seat of his business, which is still where it is today, in the heart of Chimsey. That's where the head office is. Those sorts of civic engagements started literally with the local Kaifong Association and local groups in the neighbourhood and the district councils and the sort of very extremely local council work. And it evolved out of that gradually. He was encouraged by certain older mentors, both Cindy but also British and others in business, to go beyond those local circles. First of all, things like Rotary and Masons get you into a, a sort of next layer of engagement. You start to meet people also from Hong Kong Island and other parts of Hong Kong and, of course, then other parts of the world because before you know it, he's on trade missions with the Trade Development Council all around the world. He's starting to learn how to lobby with America or British governments and so on. And this is a sort of gradual sort of escalation of engagement 
starting with what he knew and then learning more and growing with it and I think therefore being able to make much more of a contribution and I think what Iran was talking about with this initial engagement with things such as the, inviting the Indian Prime Minister Nehru to come that's because he was then at this moment chairman of the India Association in Hong Kong and wanted to connect I mean the, these were times of huge change who knew what was going on in India in the 50s and so on and, and where Hong Kong was going to be ending out and so he had this conviction that you had to talk to everybody, you had to connect with everybody as much as possible and keep all lines open. So as soon as he could connect into the British government and if they also responded, which weirdly enough people like Grantham did and subsequent governors, Harry, because he had some style also, it's not just some business now. And I think maybe also your mother of Iran. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, yeah. sorry to interrupt you, but she when I look does. at photos, he's got a he's got a charisma that comes oh, out. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I don't normally say this sort of thing, but he and I think Padma together, they, they really added something to an event when they turned up. They had some style. So when Harry is head of an association, you know he's going to pull in the right people to the party, literally. So he's going to be able to bring in the governor. He's going to be able to bring in, you know, all the top ambassadorial types or heads of this and that. And I've spoken to some of them, and they all refer to what a good time <laughs> was always to be had. And that having an invite to dinner at the Harry Layla Mansion was, I mean, it was always exhausting, and I myself have experienced this, but it was always a good time. So, you know, there was just something extra and special about it. And probably for some of these stuffy old types from the peak, you know, it was, ooh, it was a bit exotic going off to this amazing mansion in Kowloon, of all places. So this was a connection that I think also Harry was smart enough to play on. Hey, I'm different and I've got some, you know, I can add some zest to this stuff. So he did that all the way through, you know, from Nehru to the governors too. And then eventually, of course, to even when he's invited onto the sort of Chinese-led liaison bodies and committees and so on, he's often the only non-ethnic Chinese in these circles. Now, on the one hand, and I remember asking Iran about this when I was working on the book, surely he's just being used as a sort of tokenism kind of thing. But I think it's also because he was genuinely liked I mean, he was an extremely likable guy, and he was fun to have around. And if you wanted to have just not too boring a committee, bring in Harry. Yeah, I was just, when I was reading through the book, I mean, some of the people are Run Run Shaw, Sir T.L. Yang, and a variety of people, because also you've got Stanley Ho in there, Harry O'Dell, the impresario, and also Gordon and Ivy Wu. Now, can you tell me a little bit about how your parents met? If you believe the story, it's directly from my father's mouth. Uh, he fell in love with my mother when she was seven years old. And my, fa my father was about nine years older, nine to ten years older than her. And he says, oh, he, you know, uh, he was in his shop and some wonderful large card turns up. My mother's father, you know, walks into the shop and he spots my mother through the window of the shop in the car and says, that's the woman I'm going to marry. So if you, if you believe that story, that's, that's the way they met. And according to my mother, actually, she said that her parents 
gave her the choice. Now, this is incredibly strange for uh, a Cindy girl having been married in 1947 and, you know, within her teens to be given such a massive choice by Indian parents. I mean, this doesn't happen today. But she said that her, her grandparents actually asked her to, to, to choose because my father was not a wealthy man at that time. My mother came from a very wealthy family and were very wealthy in, in Hong Kong. And they knew her, her life would change drastically and it wasn't on paper a match made in heaven. Now, when they got married, actually, I, what I've seen from my parents is that they, as you can read in the book, actually, my father was just absolutely besotted by my mother from every day, just they traveled together. They never left each other's sides. Uh, every business trip, and then in those days, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, business trips that they used to take were four to six weeks long. They used to travel all around the world, Southeast Asia, the west and east coast of America, London, back to Asia. So that was a long time. That was four to six weeks. And on every single trip, four times a year, my mother and, and father would travel together. They were inseparable. They got married very young. My mother was about 15 years old and my father was 25 years old. Yeah. Here in Hong Kong, one of the first official Indian weddings to happen. It happened in the Sikh Gurdwara, the, the Sikh temple, and it was one of the first official Indian weddings here in Hong Kong. The Sikh in, temple. Like, the Sikh temple. So as Sindhis, we all go to the Sikh temple, actually. We go less to the Hindu temple and more to the Sikh temple. We read from the same religious book as the Sikhs read from. Interesting. So that was uh, their wedding in 1947. In 1947. And, uh, yes, and what a successful marriage. And can I just add that Harry was 15 minutes late because he'd had an important business meeting early in the day. <laughs> <laughs> can you tell me about the, the Harry Layla mansion? Was that a Harry concept? Uh, it was entirely his concept, actually. They lived in a, in a smaller house, and, and when they grew together, uh, he said he was going to actually to create a bigger house. Architecturally, he was inspired by Mughal architecture, so therefore the symmetry of Mughal architecture, if you walk into our house, you walk into the foyer, and there is a central dome that uh, goes up three stories. On the right and left side, there are fountains, and then there are function rooms, again on the right and left side of, of there. If you go up one and two stories, there are living quarters all around, but the house is entirely symmetrical. So he was inspired by the jolly screens, by the colors, by by the shapes of, of all Mughal architecture. Uh, and he wanted to put all the family within the house together. So he built that. We moved in in December 1970. And the only reason I know that is because I was born in January 1971. So I was the first child to move in there. Interesting. Not having known the house before. Now that's quite a, I mean, quite a thing to have a family under one roof. How does it all work? It, it works very well because actually we don't get involved in each other's lives. I think that the key to maintaining harmony and unity within this family is not to get involved in each other's lives. But how we do get involved is that we have a central kitchen and the food comes up from that central kitchen for lunch and dinner. So everybody eats the same food every day. There's a central laundry. So uh, when I was young, I always had H6 on all of my clothes, which was was the sixth child of Harry. And when I went to boarding school, all my friends were shocked that they would have their, their clothes name tagged. And I said, I've always had my clothes name tagged. <laughs> um, it didn't uh, it didn't faze me at all. But on Sunday evenings, ever since I can remember, we always have dinner together as a family. And at one point, there were probably a, a hundred of us in the house. And so a hundred of us would turn up for Sunday night dinners. And there were three generations all getting along together. The, the children, I was a child in those 
those days, you know, we were running around riding bikes. And uh, when we had to sit down at the table, we sat down at the table. My father's generation were obviously the elder generation. And there was there were the teenagers. So uh, now I'm 50 years old. And that tradition of of sitting down at, at a dinner table whether nowadays it's more sunday afternoon as opposed to sunday evening as people have gotten older but uh we still do that interesting and uh, but also you were saying that uh, while your dad was alive in in more recent years you were still playing regular tennis with him uh, aside from the business side can you tell me about some of his hobbies passions music uh, his, his passions were, were essentially tennis, badminton and reading. He really enjoyed reading. At any spare time, he, he would be uh, sitting in the corner reading a book, trying, trying to learn something new. He absolutely adored tennis, and, and we would be, we, besides playing together, we would watch all the major tournaments. He enjoyed exploring, actually. Traveling was something which, in the day where, when uh, not that many people were traveling for pleasure, I think he was so excited that he visited 80 different countries, 60 or 80 different countries, he used to say. And, and when I hear stories of them finding chandeliers, traveling to Czechoslovakia, what was Czechoslovakia in those days, Czechoslovakia to find chandeliers for the main part of the house, going to Italy and meeting the mosaic artists who would be instrumental, actually, most of the mosaics, but not all of the mosaics, but most of the mosaics in, in our family house, traveling to South America and, and, and all these different places that I'd never even heard of them traveling to because I wasn't even born or I was too young. And understanding what, how much they'd experienced in their lives in a day where travel was just not the run of the mill. It was quite exciting. So I would say his, his hobbies were certainly tennis and badminton and, and reading and traveling and, and exploring. Now, as a businessman, because I mean, he would have had an awful lot to cover. And, and you know, it's a very kind of diverse life, diverse business interests. Did he kind of get up at dawn? Was he supremely organized? Or did he just have, did he rely on a lot of administrative staff? How, do, how did he allocate his day? Yeah, he used to, he used to get up uh, relatively early, 6, 6, 36, 7 o'clock. And he started his day with yoga, 15 or 30 minutes of yoga. When, you know, in those days, yoga was not as popular and faddish as it is today. He would then have his tea and go to work, read the newspaper and go to work. Entertaining at home was very important. So he would probably have parties of somewhere between 40 and 80 people three to four times a week. And when he wasn't doing that, he was trying to convince my mother to go out for dinner. And my mother said, well, you know, I don't really want to go out for dinner. I have to put another sari on and put my makeup on. And, and he said, well, what are we going to do sitting at home? So he was never one to sit at home and have dinner and relax. He always wanted to be out meeting friends if he wasn't entertaining it out he was at, at the uh, the holiday inn well i so quite an extrovert an incredible <laughs> extrovert yes an incredible extrovert there's no question about that one of the stories I love most, because the person we haven't talked enough about so far is Padma. And I think, I mean, even to this day, I mean, to me, I, I see her as a sort of a duchess. She holds court on the top floor of the mansion. And she's got grandchildren and even great-grandchildren who she loves and she'll do anything for. But people are always popping in and out. And she's this sort of central figure. And I think the fact is, as Iran mentioned, that since Harry and Padma first met, I mean, there were madly in love and they were madly in love all the way through i mean decade after decade after decade they were still madly in love so i mean i think that's adorable and she was absolutely i think central to his 
confidence in things. If, for example, and she told me this, if she had thought the Holiday Inn was a bad idea, she would have said so. And I said, and then? She said, oh, I would have stopped it. So there was no question that she knew she had power in that relationship. She, she was very important to Harry, and Harry was not lightly going to go against anything that she thought or believed or, you know, against her common sense. So that was a very tight bond, and I think he relied on her hugely for, first of all, entree to circles and how to behave and so on, and then also just personal support and confidence all through these years and, and the fun of travelling together. I mean, it's very clear they both loved it all the time. They had a ball. And my favourite story about all of this is in the earlier days, in the 50s and 60s, when Harry was sort of gradually entering into his more public, civic, even political roles, and there would be, you know, three or four appointments in an evening. There'd be this cocktail, then there'd be an appearance at that sort of launch of something, and then there'd be a dinner. Now, picture this if you can. Padma would always have a spare sari in her handbag <laughs> and she would change saris in the back of the car. And I thought, that is just amazing. I wanted her to demonstrate how you could do that. And, you know, she'd have different sandals. She'd have it all ready, you know, because they were these. this was a young couple and they were moving up. They were out to make a splash and, and they wanted to do it really well. I mean, there's no way either of these two people are going to do something sort of half-assed. I mean, if they've committed, they're just going to do it. So if that meant changing a sari in the car, then so be it. My thanks to Aron Harry-Layla and Vodine England talking there on the life of businessman and philanthropist Harry Harry-Layla. His biography, written by Vodine, Harry Harry-Layla, made in Hong Kong, is available at Kelly and Walsh. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. Mm-hmm.